The preaching of God's Word is now James chapter 3, verse 17, and we conclude our treatment of this verse. We'll have one more sermon in the series as the Lord gives us opportunity next week, but for now we give uh, an attention to the preaching of God's Word from James 3, verse 17, wherein He is testifying of the wisdom, notice verse 17, that is from above. So hear that verse James 3.17, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, and without hypocrisy. So this evening we take up that last characteristic which is set forth in this verse, namely that it is without partiality. These two words in English, similar to the preceding couple of words, is from one word in the Greek. It is that which negates uh, some quality. And so, heavenly wisdom is said here to be without hypocrisy. The word so uh, translated is elsewhere translated as without dissimulation in Romans 12 and verse 9, and in 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 6, translated as unfeigned. Both of them, of course, as this expression, carry the same idea. The idea is a word that says whatever is found in the idea of hypocrisy, whatever is found in the idea of disguising and of putting on a show, all of that is not found where wisdom is found. So wisdom is without these things. The word itself that is here translated without hypocrisy, the root of it is a word that was applied, as you'll hear again and again, whenever you come to the word hypocrites or hypocrisy, it was a word that was applied to a stage actor in ancient days. And so they would be putting on a presentation. It's not saying that the stage actor was itself sinful, but the idea of, in religion, putting on a pretentious show is indeed sinful. And so Christ reproves, and you'll be well aware of this, the Pharisees often as hypocrites, mask wearers, stage actors. They're putting on a show as if there's something, when in reality there's something else. And now when we return to our text, when it says that the wisdom that is from above is without hypocrisy, you can begin to get a sense of what James is saying. It does not put on a show uh, other than what is truly bound up in it. It does not put on a display in order to impress others. It doesn't put on a display in order to manipulate uh, the group or the individual. It doesn't put on a display to cause others to think highly of himself or to pretend to be as something that one is not. There is no concealment of the truth of the matter. Mask wearing is always focused on the perception of others. You know, we're putting on a mask if we're trying to be perceived as something else in the eyes of others. You know, actors with all of their skills and so on, for the moment, are wanting you to forget who they really are in order to entertain the thought that there's somebody else in that play or whatever else it may be. And in religion, and even with the attempt to show forth a form of wisdom, 
someone is trying to put on something else than they really are. Now, wisdom is without all of this. If we were to say it positively, we would say that wisdom is sincere. And so it's without hypocrisy. It's not putting on a show. It's not pretending to something it isn't. It's not trying to garner attention and praise and with some ulterior motive pursuing a different course. Rather, it's sincerely both stating and living according to the Word of God. It truly seeks to honor the Lord. It truly seeks to edify those around. And so in one sense we can say this, where wisdom is found, self is not found. Self is not pronounced. Self is not in the focus. It's not the counsel being given, in other words, so that others would think much of ourselves or that we might be able to uh, move up in the estimation of others or uh, perhaps procure something for ourselves. The counsel, the life, all of these things is sincerely for the praise of God and for the benefit of others. And so you'll see again in context, which we hope to complete as the Lord gives us opportunity next week. Notice how James moves into verse 18, the word and, so these characteristics lead into this, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. And so where these characteristics are, there's a genuine, a sincere service to others to try, as the Lord would indeed add His blessing, to benefit those who are before them. It's seeking to bring forth the fruit of righteousness as it is sown in peace. And Lord willing, we'll give attention to that next week. Well, we want to look at this sincerity, right? The opposite. If it's without hypocrisy, we can say it's with sincerity. And we don't just mean sincerity of motives, but it's sincere in that it's sincerely expressive of the truth. And so someone can be sincere and yet sincerely wrong, right? So someone can think for a moment, as you guys have uh, experienced, a Jehovah's Witness comes and is imploring you with uh, a sincere, as they would think, desire for you to come to their meeting. And it's not as if they have some uh, different idea, well, I don't really want you to come. They're indicating a, a sincere desire for you to come, and they perhaps think, you know, you need to have what I am uh, putting forth. And yet their sincerity is misfounded. It's founded upon error. Wisdom, as we've seen, is not founded upon error. Wisdom is founded upon truth. And so it's not, in other words, that James is just saying, you know, wisdom is where you find just these ideas of motive. But he is acknowledging that the motive where wisdom is found is nonetheless sincere. So let's consider a couple of things this evening. What is this sincerity which belongs to wisdom? And secondly, to help us somewhat uh, what are some common temptations that interfere with this characteristic? So what, firstly, is this sincerity? Well, if we were to acknowledge or state simply what it is, it is to seek God's glory sincerely, not only in the counsel we give, but in the formation of our own lives. Because remember, Wisdom is not just bookish. It's not just intellectual. 
One may know all of the best philosophers. We can go far better than that. One may know all of the best theologians. We can go better than that. One may have memorized the whole of the Bible and have all biblical knowledge and yet be as foolish, consider this, as Satan is. Do you know who knows the Bible better than you? Satan does. Satan knows the Bible forwards, backwards, everywhere. He knows it. But none of us would ever consider Satan wise. So the point is, as we've seen through our studies somewhat, wisdom is not merely about our minds being... It is rather that truth, of course, is embraced... And yet, truth then governs our lives. And so we saw that in the first characteristic that James mentioned, the wisdom that is from above is first pure. It's holy. It's set upon a holy way. It's set upon holy ends. And chief and above all else, it is that which seeks the glory of God. You can see in context, again, if we sort of zoom out, Notice in verse 14, if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, it's interesting, as we read in 1 Peter 2, these kinds of qualities are the things that Peter says you are to lay aside. But where you have those things, he says, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. But what is it that the wisdom that God gives is well it's without hypocrisy now if you go back remember what is the beginning of wisdom the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the lord and you can start to see all of these things more firmly coming together it is a posture not just of mind but of desire and will and action a posture of our whole being that is fixed on first and so when we read in the Scriptures, for instance, Christ saying, the first commandment, the greatest commandment is love the Lord thy God with all of thy heart and soul and strength and mind. He's not, in other words, just saying, well, this is pragmatic. This is the practical idea. He's actually teaching us wisdom. When you read through the book of Proverbs, all of the concrete ideas are in the context of seeking God, fearing God, honoring God. A wise person is committed above all else to the glory of God. First, through all, out all else and unto the end. It is that which seeks God's glory. But again, it is sincerely doing so. It's not just in lip service, which any of us can do, which any human can do, which frankly, a parrot can learn to say. But it is rather a life that is oriented not just in word, but in activity to the glory of God. You can see different sort of instances of this already in James. The idea of if you say unto your neighbor, you know, peace, be warmed and filled, verse 16 of chapter 2, And notwithstanding, ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? It's illustrative of something. We're able to say the right thing, 
but our actions betray the fact, or may betray the fact, that our hearts are not actually engaged in the right thing. So we can go to someone and say, you know what, go in peace, be warm and filled. And yet, we may have the very means that are able to support them in their necessity and in their privation. And yet, if we don't actually assist them, it's hard for us to say that the desire is actually sincere. Because if there's sincere desire and the means, then there will be some effort to meet that issue. And so, this wisdom is something that is sincere with reference to God. Think of the way that Christ says it when he says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. He doesn't just say something like, um, Acknowledge first the kingdom of God, or believe that God's kingdom should be first, or profess that God's kingdom ought to have the priority. He actually orients it into our action. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Obviously embedded in that is a conviction that we ought to seek first the kingdom of God, but it's expressive of a sincerity in that we're seeking it. Don't just pretend to it. Don't just confess it, but actually give your lives to this matter. And when we find true wisdom, we find that one is sincerely doing this. Another thing that wisdom does is it faithfully applies truth in its quest to seek God's glory. And so it's not something that's just saying, well, I have this ulterior motive and end, my purpose, and therefore I'm going to bring and usher certain arguments to bear upon that so that I can gain my purpose. That is, to manipulate the issue to a different end. You can see this, for instance, when the Pharisees and the scribes and others come to Christ on multiple occasions. We've seen this in the Gospel of Luke, and they have a question, right? And it seems to be, at surface level, a question that's worth considering. And so, of course, this will be recorded in the Gospels. Christ is asked, you know, there's a man. Sadducees raised this question. And, you know, a woman, she was... Uh, married to this man, and he died. Married to another man, he died, and so forth. And then they raise the question, well, whose wife shall she be in the resurrection? See, what they're doing is they're marshalling all sorts of circumstances, and they're actually appearing to be wise and insightful, but they're uh, uh, misguiding and misapplying that truth in order to seek their own end. They're trying to catch Christ in his words, as the Pharisees did on their own occasion, and others as well. But where wisdom is, it's not marshalling things, collecting things in order to find some subtlety to our own end. It's actually taking matters and seeking to apply it for the sake of truth. And so you can see, for instance, as we'll give consideration, the opposite of that in the life of Absalom in a moment. But lastly, sincerity and wisdom is seeking God's glory, faithfully applying God's truth, and doing so with a fair weighing of the real circumstances. The scriptures are actually full of this issue. So in other words, if you were asked, should someone 
kill another? You'd say, of course, no, thou shalt not kill. Well, if you were asked in general, what is the scriptural punishment for someone who takes the life of another? In general, you would say, well, it's capital punishment. The Bible says that uh, the who sheds blood, his life, uh, his blood shall be shed. But notice how wisdom in the book of Exodus, and what a beautiful thing God does in Exodus. He gives us the Ten Commandments, these true, clear uh, laws, but then he gives us cases to help us discern how wisely to apply these truths. So, for instance, notice in Exodus chapter 21, with reference to one issue we've mentioned, the issue of, uh, of killing. So in Exodus 21 and at verse 12, you notice, He that smiteth a man so that he dies shall be surely put to death. Now here's the point. Someone could say, see, here's the text. And so someone then says, therefore, in every case where someone puts another one to death, they ought to die. But what God does is he helps facilitate our understanding to see circumstances need to be considered. And so notice what immediately follows. And if a man lie not in wait, but God deliver him into his hand, then I will appoint thee a place whither he shall flee. But if a man come presumptuously upon his neighbor to slay him with guile, thou shalt take him from mine altar that he may die. And it goes on. You can read this through the chapter and through the subsequent chapters as well. What God is doing is He's giving circumstances which help us discern how it is we take this unalterable law and apply it to all of the circumstances before us. I'm not saying that the Bible gives us the exhaustive list of all circumstances, but what the Bible is doing is showing us that it demands wisdom to know how to take these things and apply them rightly to the different circumstances. You see this again, for instance, in the same chapter, for simplicity's sake, in chapter 21, verse 28, it speaks of an ox that gores another. Notice verse 28, If an ox gore a man or a woman that they die, then the ox shall be surely stoned, and his flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall be quit. That is, he's done. He's freed from anything else. But, if the ox were wont to push with his horn in time past, and it hath been testified to his owner, and he hath not kept him in, but that he hath killed a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and his owner also shall be put to death. Do you see the point? In one sense, you have the same thing. Here's an ox that gores and thus kills another person. So someone could say, look, two different cases, but fundamentally it's the same thing. The ox killed this person. But the scriptures are helping us to see more deeply into the circumstances. If this is a first-time thing, really the master, you know, isn't the one at fault. Now the animal needs to be put to death. He loses out on the income. That's not a little thing, by the way, for that time. However, notice the word but, verse 29 if the ox were one to push with his horn in time past, if he were uh, doing that in the time past, and the owner had been told, and the owner took no care to address that, and then the ox drove through and uh, uh, gored a person to death, then it's not just the ox that's getting put to death, because the owner is now morally culpable for the death 
that has taken place. So the, the, the owner now is to be put to death. What's the point? Well, if you read through this section of Exodus, you'll see this again and again and again and again. At surface level, it's the same type of thing happening. But what the Bible is doing is saying, you have to consider the circumstances. And the circumstances will help inform what really is going on. And thus, what the consequence really ought to be. Well, here's the point. When someone stands and says, you can imagine this in Old Testament times, well, this person should be put to death even though they fled to the city of refuge because they killed a man. And it has the appearance of biblical wisdom. It appeals to text, you know, chapter uh, and verse and so on. But it's actually not handling the Scriptures themselves well or acknowledging the circumstances well. The point is, this sincerity is sincere both with the Scriptures and with the circumstances. It's not manipulating one or the other. It's neither ignoring the circumstances, nor is it mishandling the Word of God. It is handling it fairly, rightly, sincerely, not with some sort of underhanded pretense to gain its own desires or another's. Do you remember Ahab and Jezebel? And Ahab desired uh, a vineyard that neighbored his own. And the man wouldn't sell it because it was his inheritance. It's his lot from the Lord. It wasn't this selfish principle. He's saying, this is what you know, God has told me. I'm not to give this up. And Jezebel takes care of it by finding false accusers to accuse this man uh, wickedly of a sin he didn't commit, and therefore he's put to death. What's going on? Well, it has, at some surface level, if the, if the uh, uh, sort of curtains weren't drawn back, if you had seen it, you would have said, well, yeah, this man blasphemed God, therefore he should be put to death. But what the Scriptures are doing is pulling back the veil to, see, to, to cause us to see that it's without sincerity being pursued. The real motive is not God's glory, number one, like we've said. And the real activity is not handling the Scriptures rightly. And it's not actually dealing with the circumstances before them. It's all uh, uh, miscolored because of man's sin. Well, where wisdom, true wisdom is found, it is that which seeks God's glory and its counsel and activity. It's rightly handling the Word of God and it's fairly addressing the varied circumstances that may uh, approach into our consideration. Well, secondly then, what are some common temptations that come to us? If it is without hypocrisy, well, obviously there are temptations that lead one to hypocrisy. What are they? Well, if we can say essentially what the temptation is, it is first and foremost the self-promotion, the promoting of ourselves. And the promoting of ourselves with our words, the promoting of ourselves with our decisions, the promoting ourselves with our lives. Because remember, wisdom is not just words spoken, it's activities done. It's a lifestyle and so on. And so you can think of this for a moment if you look at the Pharisees as indicated earlier. Notice in Luke's Gospel, chapter 12 and verse 1, it's there that Christ reproves them. And uh, as this is going on, he says, he began to say unto his disciples, first of all, in the 12 verse 1, 
Beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And so this is a particular issue with the Pharisees. Now, there's more to this, of course, in the rest of Christ's teachings. Notice, for instance, in Matthew chapter 6, if you were asked the question, is prayer good? You'd doubtlessly say, of course it's good. But if you were asked a more nuanced question, is it possible to be hypocritical in our prayers and thus make that prayer bad, you'd say, well, of course. So there's nuance. But notice how Christ brings this out in Matthew 6 and verse 5. He says to his disciples, Thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets. Now notice, he's pointing out their activity. He's not pointing out their teaching. He's pointing out their activity, their life. And then he goes further, and he identifies the cause of it, that they may be seen of men. You see, their life, which was highly praised as wise and godly and devout, was actually, when Christ assesses it and opens it, was actually worthy of no praise. It's worthy of condemnation. And so you can imagine this men going by and saying, you know what, every time I'm on my way to the market, this man is on the corner praying. What a man. And you can imagine how that gets developed and so on. And eventually people come to him and say, you know, you pray so often. Tell me about this. How can I learn to pray like that? And there can be this cultivated following of sorts. The point is, Christ has put his finger upon their true desire. Their desire is not to pray. You see that. That would be wise. That would be honoring to God. Their desire is to be seen of men. They desire the praise of man. They want men to come and say, what a pious person you are. They want men to come and say, instruct me in the way that you are leading. The idea is they're promoting self, even in what at surface level looks to be a wise and godly pursuit. This can be true of all sorts of things, from the way we instruct others. Someone comes to us to counsel, and though we even might be saying the right things, there has to be a question that is put to ourselves. Is my purpose promoting God, as we've indicated already, wisdom sincerely seeks God's glory, or is my purpose to promote myself? So that in the end, they walk away and say, what a wellspring of insight this person is. Or as mothers, is my purpose to be esteemed by my children as this you know, perfect image of what mothering is? Or is my purpose to train up my children unto God? Right? The training of our children up to God is wisdom. The helping them to see what is right and wrong is wisdom. But what's my purpose? Is my purpose to make them think of me as something great? Or is my purpose that they are helped in the way of knowing the Lord and following Him? The point is this. It's not just abject foolishness spoken or done that is the temptation. Frankly, that's infrequently the temptation to just go out and make a fool of yourself. 
The temptation is actually to be committed to a point that is true or right, or at least in some semblance is, but to engage in that counsel, activity, etc., in order that we may gain the attention, that others may think of us as something. This is not true wisdom, because fundamentally there's hypocrisy. You see, what's going on is we're putting on a presentation in order that others would think of us to be something than we truly are. Because if we were truly wise, the desire to be thought of highly by others would not be present. Promoting self is a temptation. And whereas it may start in right things and right ways and right words, as that starts to fester within us, it eventually so inflates us that we make a wreck and uh, shipwreck of the faith. You see this idea as indicated in Second Samuel chapter 15. So it's not as if uh, you know what, what's going on with Absalom is easily to be detected at its moment. It's easy for us because it's presented to us so clearly. But you can imagine this, right? You, if it were the case that you were to go to the Supreme Court, if this were the way our city or nation functioned, and you had to sort of bring your case, and you got there, and it's like the doors aren't open to you, and yet someone was there saying, oh, that I could help you. You know, I'd be more than willing to devote my life to assist you, and in order that you can receive just hearing and just uh, guidance and whatever else, I would gladly die in my quest to serve you. Well, fundamentally, this is what Absalom's doing. He's grabbing the people who come to Jerusalem, the, the, the center, the capital of spiritual and political and righteous governance. And notice what takes place. Absalom would grab them that came by and he would ask them. And then he would say, verse 3, See, thy matters are good and right, but there's no man deputed of the king to hear thee. Now, it's to be suspect that that were the case. They've come to see the king. There's no indication that the king would not have court. You know, we see this in Solomon. When Solomon's brought to be king, he did have court. But whatever the case, notice what becomes clear. Absalom, verse 4, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, that every man which hath any suit or cause might come unto me, and I would do him justice. What's the appearance? The appearance, again, granted, we know what's going on, but the appearance is here's a man committed to justice. Here's a man committed to a cause of righteousness. Here's a man that if we would support, would be able to carry us forward personally and corporately to be a just society. And yet, the whole issue is actually with full hypocrisy. Absalom's not considered or are not concerned in the least about justice. Absalom's not considered or concerned in the least for the welfare of those to whom he's speaking with all of the activity he's doing. Notice verse 6. Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. His desire was simply to get the grand population or at least a large enough percentage behind him so that he could overthrow his father and have the rule. He wasn't interested in righteousness. What's the point? He was interested in himself. 
Now notice how he went about it. He went about it promoting justice, promoting righteousness, promoting a good cause, and so forth. All of that's right to do. Should you promote justice and righteousness and equity and peace? You see, those words that Absalom's using are words that are intimately, necessarily connected with wisdom. You see it as in James 3.18, righteousness is, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by them that make peace. The point is peace, righteousness, truth, justice, all of these are necessarily connected to wisdom. What Absalom is setting himself forth as is as a man who is wise. He's setting himself forth as wisdom and one who will wisely handle the affairs of the individual, the family, the nation, etc. And the fruit of that will be righteousness, justice, peace. All of that's right, apart from this subtle and yet clear issue. It was hypocritical. He was putting on a display that had no substance to it in reality. He was saying the right things, perhaps promoting the right things in one sense, but ultimately, unbeknownst to the people whose hearts he was stealing, he was actually promoting himself. He was bringing it forward. It was the Trojan horse that would lead to King David's downfall at this time. He's putting himself up as something, but inside are all of the warriors who would spill out and overthrow what seemed to be a gift to the people. And by the way, it's not just Absalom who suffers in the end for this. It's the kingdom of Israel that suffers because of this. So anyway, promoting self. Another temptation, not unrelated, it's always related to this, will either be sincerely seeking God's glory, promoting Him through our counsel and actions, or will be seeking ourselves one way or another. But one way it manifests is by misapplying or mishandling the truth. So wisdom is knowledgeable of the truth, knowledgeable of the Scriptures, circumstances, and by the grace of God seeks to apply it. That's true in our own personal lives. It's true in our counsel to others and in the way that we live in front of others. But what a temptation is that comes in is to sort of leverage certain things onto an improper end. It's mishandling, misusing the truth. It's what happens, of course, for instance, when Satan tempts Jesus Christ. So he says, you know, listen, if you're the Son of God, cast yourself down, for it's written, you know, God will not suffer your foot to be dashed among the stones. He gives his angels charge over you. They'll hold you up. See the point? He's using a text of Scripture. He's using truth. And in one sense, to the feeble-minded, it might seem like, yeah, that's the way to go. You know what? God's Word says this. I'm going to fling myself off because I believe God's Word. It appears wise, but it's actually mishandling the Word itself. Satan is a master of this. He does this with our souls. He does this with churches. He does this with society, where he takes true ideas, divorces them from their foundation, and then misguides individuals, families, churches, societies, etc. It has a semblance. It has an appearance of wisdom. But fundamentally, 
it is without wisdom. Think of the, the word that Paul uses in the book of Colossians in chapter 2 when he uses this very expression. Colossians chapter 2, he says in verse 23 about this, um, this approach to holiness, right? So we would say holiness is necessary. Holiness, you know, without holiness, we shall not see God. Holiness is most necessary, but there have been false teachers who came in, verse 21, saying, touch not, taste not, handle not. Notice, after the doctrines and commandments and doctrines of men, now notice verse 23, which things have indeed a show, or we would translate perhaps, an appearance of wisdom. It looks wise. You want to be holy, abstain from these things. Don't touch those things. Don't go near to those things. Don't eat those things. Don't participate in those things. Whatever it is, right? So you get the idea before you. Paul says, he admits, it has an appearance of wisdom. But notice he says, but it's not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. It's misguided. It doesn't actually produce what it's promising to produce. It doesn't put to death sin. It doesn't cause one to grow in holiness. It's mishandling perhaps an idea, but it's misapplying it to certain things, and thus it leads people into error. It's mishandling the truth. And there are reasons that people do this. Some, doubtlessly, with a sincere conviction, think that they should do it that way. Others, because they love to have the preeminence among men, do these things. Whatever the case, the point is this. That's a temptation that you and I will face. A temptation to latch onto something and for selfish gain, whether the applause, uh, applause of men or the procuring of something uh, or the easing past a discomfort, we'll take a truth and misapply it in order to benefit ourselves in one way or another thereby. Wisdom is without that. Whereas Paul says this has the appearance of of wisdom. It is wisdom that foregoes that mishandling of the truth. Well, brethren, as wisdom is without hypocrisy, as James says here, as it is sincere, in other words, there are things for us to consider. Firstly, we ought to search not only our hearts and words, but our actions. And in searching ourselves, if we're on the quest to say, you know, I mean, think of it this way. If someone asked you, are you a wise person or are you foolish? Most likely, none of us is going to say, I'm a foolish person. We're going to lean toward putting ourselves generally in the camp of wise. And of course, if believers, that's a right assessment. There is a foundation of wisdom there. But we can go further and ask perhaps, okay, well, if it is the case, if it is the case that generally we're wise, To what degree are we wise? Well, this is a helpful way of examining ourselves. We can ask the question, is my counsel, is my activity, is my life, is all of these things, is it done sincerely to God's glory? Is it done sincerely to assist others? Is it done because of sincere conviction of God's word? This is a question. Or, is there some degree or prominent degree, of the idol of self motivating these things. A father giving good counsel, what reason is it for? Maybe right counsel, maybe the counsel that's needed. 
but is it the counsel given more for the fact of puffing up ourself in the sight of children or a wife or other fathers, or is it sincerely because my desire is to glorify God and help others to know and follow Him. We've talked about mothers can have this temptation. Siblings can have this temptation. Pastors can have this temptation. Christians can have this temptation in counseling others. It can be the right counsel. It can be good counsel. It can be wholesome counsel. In that way, it can be wise. But the question to ask is not merely, does it match up in substance with what God's Word says? But is my motive sincere in seeking to promote God's glory and the good and well-being of others. Because wisdom is God-oriented first and others-oriented second. It's promoting God to His Word and governing our lives and others' lives accordingly for the purpose not just of God's glory, but in doing so to His glory that His people would be edified. Is my counsel as a fellow Christian to another Sincerely for God's glory and my fellow saints' edification. You can think of this, for instance, in various you know, social media forums. The, the comments that get put forth and the jabs that go in, they may be right. They may be sound as far as the counsel there is right. But that doesn't mean that it's actually wise It may be that the counsel given, the thumbs up, the like, all of those things are actually foolish. That though outwardly it's the right counsel, the question is not just about the outward display. The question is, is the motive that is leading to that statement, leading to that comment, leading to that whatever, is it a sincere a desire without hypocrisy that God would be glorified and others be edified. This is the kind of thing that we have to take up if we're going to root out of ourselves this plague of hypocrisy. Does it fundamentally promote God or does it fundamentally promote me? Does it sincerely seek the good of others Or does it really just seek my advance or something of that sort? Now, this ought not to be mistaken with only saying flowery things. When you read through the book of Proverbs, you'll see that there are strong things said. There are difficult conversations had. There are very frank things that are expressed. And yet, that's not an excuse for us just to mouth off and say hard things and difficult things and frank things. It is a call to us when the circumstances warrant to stand for God's truth, sincerely seeking His glory and our neighbor's good. So we can search ourselves in this and praise God that by His grace we're able to say, Lord willing, that there's been growth in this. Oh, none of us can say that we're perfect in it, but increasingly, by God's grace, the believer is able to say, increasingly am I seeking the glory of God. What a testimony of His grace. Well, again, this is something that we're to cultivate. It's not so clear here in James, as it's stated, but elsewhere in Scripture, these are things we're to pursue and cultivate. How is it that we would cultivate sincerity and wisdom? 
Well, one way, and perhaps preeminently, is by a real meditating upon God's Word. This is worthy of emphasis, perhaps in its own address from the Scriptures. But the idea of meditating is more than reading. The idea of meditating is not just sort of repeating, even in our minds. It includes those things. It can include those things. But it's the thinking upon the truth of God, of course by God's grace and His provision, to the end that our souls are not only informed and instructed, but nourished and strengthened. That's less able to be quantified than saying, memorize this passage, read this chapter, and carry on. Now, those things can be good and helpful tools. We ought to be reading the Scriptures regularly. We ought to be memorizing passages. These are instruments, as it were, to assist us. But you and I know what it is to sit down with a chapter in front of us, ten chapters in front of us, and read, and yet our minds go elsewhere. You and I know what it is to memorize a passage in our childhood and still have it in our adulthood, and yet find a life that is out of sync with the very passage that we've memorized. The point is, where meditation is, it brings spiritual nourishment that leads to transformation. This meditation is the type of spiritual activity that cultivates wisdom. It's what uh, Ezra the scribe did. He gave himself to the Word of God. He was meditating upon the Word. He was then forming his life according to that Word. And then he taught others that Word. This is typically the pattern of a you know, young Reformed high school or college student or uh, someone who's newly brought to the Reformed faith. They typically do this. I've discovered truth. Now I'm going to pronounce it to everybody and let everybody know their problems, their errors, where I'm right, where they're wrong, where the whole church is messed up. Instead of doing as the Scriptures do, meditating upon this, cultivating grace, transforming our own lives by His grace, so that our lives then show forth the beauty of truth, that then our words spoken would have the weight of a life that is weighed heavily by the truth of God's Word. There is the fundamental need, if ever we should be wise, to meditate upon God's Word. Children and young people, you're at an age where you're able to memorize. You're at an age that you are able to take in large quantities of God's Word. And it's easier actually for you than it is for many adults. This doesn't excuse adults for their hard work that they need to take up. But it is something for you to think on. But here's the press to you. If you're going to be wise, you need to be more than walking parrots of what you've memorized. You need to memorize. You need to take in. But you need time prayerfully to pray over God's Word. To ask your parents to assist you in helping to understand God's Word and apply God's Word, to look at the lives of fellow Christians and look how they exhibit by God's grace God's Word. If you're to be wise, which you're called to be, for you're in God's covenant, you have need to meditate upon God's Word with prayer, with diligence, with regularity. And not just so that you can recite then the Word, but so that your life by God's grace 
is transformed to live out your parents and this congregation's desire for you is not merely that you would have the Scriptures readily at your command to speak. We do pray for that. But it's that your lives would be transformed in the way of wisdom. To do this, all of us need to pray for the gift of wisdom. Does anyone lack wisdom? Let him ask of God. But this doesn't mean let him ask of God and zap, we've got it. God gives us wisdom by means. If we're going to ask God for wisdom, we then look to the means by which He supplies us wisdom. And so it's like this, you know, when God has given us means to procure food, we don't say, Father, give us this day our daily bread, and we wait for the magical zap of a meal to appear. We work, and we labor, and we procure, and we buy, and we fix the food, and we prepare, and we sit on the table, and we say, thank you, God, for providing us this day our daily bread. And the same is true in, quote, spiritual things. When God says, let him ask of God who gives liberally and upbraideth not, he calls us, yes, to ask and rely, but to rely upon him by his means. And so we come to God and say, oh Lord, I lack wisdom, help me. And then we don't just cross our arms and enter into some spiritual coma and hope to awaken all of a sudden with this newfound wisdom. We ask for it, and we diligently make use of the means whereby He supplies it. We make use of His Word. For to cultivate this wisdom in all matters, we are consciously in need of setting God's glory before our counsel to others and our activities as well. In my decision, in my counsel, we can ask ourselves, am I actually seeking to promote God's glory first? Is that my desire? In the, what I'm going to share with my Christian sister, in what I'm going to share with my brother, in what I'm going to counsel my children, in what I'm going to do to shepherd my wife, or shepherding the flock of God, and so on, is the counsel I'm giving actually targeting first and foremost God's glory? Or is it to win the argument? Or is it to put my child in his place? Or is it to make my life easier? Or is it this, that, or the other thing? These are things that must be weighed. Brethren, much more can be said when we think about weighing and cultivating this. But fundamentally, once again, when we start to see the weight of what James is after, this wisdom which is from above, which is only given by God, we start to see if ever we're to have this characteristic of true sincerity in our wise counsel and activity, we are held captive to God giving us grace. We must, must have God to be gracious to us, to give us understanding, to transform our lives that we would adhere it uh, to it, and to give us strength to practice it and give the counsel that's difficult. Think of Nathan, the wise seer, the prophet. He was sent of the Lord, and he was given a task that you and I would put ourselves in a circumstance must have been quite weighty. To go to King David and say, you're the man. You're the guilty man. That kind of courage comes only by God's grace. And so if we would be wise among our friends and peers, among our co-workers and our family, among the church, the world, and so on, we have need that God who gives wisdom would graciously provide us it by our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you stand?
me for prayer.